joining us on the Be Contagious Leadership Experience. Today, we've got another amazing guest that will help you get better as a coach, a leader, a partner. Dan Abraham stops by the neighborhood. He is a sports psychologist who has worked alongside individuals, teams, coaches, and organizations globally. You will love the nuggets that he drops. I'm telling you, I'm excited, and you should be too. So sit back, enjoy, take out a notebook, and be ready for Dan Abrahams. Guys, thanks so much for joining us for another episode of the Be Contagious Leadership Experience. I am excited to have, he's another brilliant mind that I've in and, and we've connected. He is a sports psychologist coming all the way from the UK. We have Dan Abrahams. How you doing, Dan? Hey, Hernando. Thank you so much for um, giving me the opportunity to come on your podcast. I'm, I'm well. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. So yeah, I'm looking forward to having a conversation. No, this is this is this is obviously it's an honor for me. I'm I'm a big follower on the things that you you do and sort of your athletic mindset that you teach a lot of different athletes. For the ones who don't know, if you don't mind giving sort of like the elevator speech of who you are and what you do. I've become an expert on this, uh, having been on enough podcasts and stuff. So, look, I'm in, 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 let's keep it as short and sweet as we can. I'm a, a former professional golfer, uh, failed miserably at the golf, largely because of what was going on between my two ears. Um, so I was well-versed in things like distraction and lack of focus and, and um, poor confidence and not being able to deal with anxiety and lethargy and doubt and worry and anxiety and all those things that happen to you. So um, I... Uh, coached the game after playing the game of golf and uh, fell in love further with the psychological side because as a golfer golf all golfers work on the mental side of the game it's the one sport that's really embraced that side over the last 40 years and so um i as i was coaching i did a degree in psychology i did my master's degree in sports psychology and became a, a registered psychologist sports psychologist here in the uk and that sent me on a journey i, I put down the golf clubs put down the, the golf good put the golf coaching to the side and became, as I say, a, a full-time sports psychologist. And uh, for the last 15 years, that's what I've been doing, working in a range of sports. Uh, predominantly, obviously, I know golf like the back of the ha my hand. And being being English, being British, um, soccer is our number one sport here. So I work heavily in soccer, heavily in golf, but across sports. And I've been lead psychologist for England golf, lead psychologist for England rugby. Um, I... Um, I've written four books, um, three soccer ones, one golf one. I know a lot of basketball coaches, for instance, have bought the soccer ones because it, it translates very easily. And um, yeah, so so uh, that's that, that's what I do. That's what I do. When you and, and I love that. I mean, the, the four books are huge. I know we talked earlier that basketball coaches are really diving into what you do. When you work, when you take a look at an athlete. Um, when you start work with an athlete, what are the first couple of things that you maybe is it as a checklist or something when you have a conversation with them and what they're trying to deal with or how they're trying to get better? Well, it's an interesting landscape and it's a really good question because obviously as a sports psychologist, you probably work across several landscapes. You know, if you're sitting down with an athlete, so let's look at it as an individual competitor, whether they play an individual sport or a team sport. One must remember as a sports psychologist, you might be working with them from a welfare and well-being perspective. But for argument's sake, let, let's stick to performance here. Um, I'm 
obviously there's two key elements here when I'm sitting down with an individual and we're talking about performance. Uh, what does what does the training landscape look like? What does the practice landscape look like? How well is this p- person practicing? And then how good a competitor is this person? And if, again, if I was to break this down further, and let's just say we're looking at this from a competing perspective, I think what's really uh, fascinating, Hernando, and you can, you can, um, you know, uh, uh, contribute here as well, very much so, having been a basketball coach all your life. Um, my main gripe on, in the competitive landscape, and I would say globally across all sports, is that very few, if any, competitors from developing elite to elite adult competitors, so the professional level, have a, a framework for the mental side of their game. When I sit down with competitors, I'm rarely able to sit down and, and ask them, okay, what are you trying to achieve mentally on the court or the course or, or, the, um, or the pitch? Um, very rarely are they able to say to me, Dan, I'm going to do ABC. And I'm going to do ABC and, and uh, I'm going to do it because this is what's important for me and this is how I'm going to accomplish it. And this, these are the mechanisms behind this. Bang, done, job done. Never, ever, ever does that happen. And I'm in a situation where I've been blessed to work with some of, certainly some of the world's best soccer players. Um, never, ever are they able. If I ask them, what are you trying to achieve on the pitch from a mental standpoint? Tumbleweed flows across the floor. You know, they just do not know the answer. They can't articulate it. Now, I'm not denying some are very naturally good at it. There's no there's no denying that. And some do have some ideas, but they tend to be random. You know, some might say, oh, well, I do a bit of mindfulness. Or others might say, oh, well, I, you know, I, I, I visualize a little bit. Others might say, yeah, no, I try to take, stay focused on court uh, or on the pitch in the heat of battle. But they're not really able to go, Dan, I'm trying to do ABC. So look, I'm trying to help players of any sport have a from a competitive standpoint let's have a framework to the mental side of the game let's have a framework that helps you able to compete with attention compete with intensity or at the right intensity and compete with positive intent those are the three mental skills that i think are really important Um, attention intensity and intent and I want to help them build a framework to help them have those three three skills. Well, I, you know, I, you're absolutely right. You know, working with athletes, you know, you sit down and, and we're taught to like, we'll ask them questions and let them just talk. But you're right. There isn't a framework. They're not saying like this is, they may say, yeah, I want to go ahead and lead the league in scoring or something. But there's no like steps on how to get there with it. So when you talk about those three things, um, the attention, the intensity and the positive intention, do they get that right away or is it specific steps that you touch on on every single one of those three things? Well, it's interesting. And if I can just take you up on something you said there about, oh, I want to be uh, the, the leading scorer. I want to get more baskets. I want to score more goals. I want, to, I want to be man of the match or woman of the match, as we might say in soccer. Or I want to, you know, I want to throw the winning basket. Or I want to be, in, be on the winning team. All of those things are natural things for competitors to say because they're very socialized into that. 
competitors are very socialized into outcome and performance. In fact, the outcome is that, well, I've got the will to win. I've got the will to win. And I think that's a slight misunderstanding of what comp- comp- being a great competitor is. And then we have the will to perform. You know, I want to score more baskets. I want to score more goals. I want to make more passes, et cetera, et cetera. I want to cover more ground. And it's like, that's all very nice. But the, the problem here is we're not really talking about things that are, are specific enough. We're not talking about things that are controllable enough. Mm. That's, a big, that's a big word here. Things that are controllable, as close to controllable as possible. So I'm coming on to answering your question, but I just wanted no, to I love that. It. Yeah. This is great. So, so, so do I talk? The, the funny thing is, is even though I've introduced this as, for me, a high-performance mindset is that attention, intensity, and intent piece, a high-performance mindset. But often when I sit down with players, that's far too overwhelming. It's like, whoa, attention, intensity, intent. Really, Dan, what, what's that about? And so I will use that language more with coaches. If I'm with a group of coaches and I'll sit down with them and I'm saying, right, mental skills, these are the three mental skills we want because they're kind of undeniable. You know, as a basketball coach, you want your players to pay attention every single second out there. You know you want them to compete at the right intensity. You don't want them to be overly activated, as we'd say, whereby they're getting too anxious or they're angry or they're frustrated. Or that we don't want them under-aroused or under-activated. They're down, they're despondent. Those are the kind of emotions that might bring them under-activated. And then we want our skills, you know as a coach, you want those skills executed with positive intent, positive with our passes, you know, positive with our runs, our movements, our actions, et cetera, et cetera. However, all that being said, if I sit down with a player, I don't want to go into too much detail on that because that's like way too much overthinking. What I want to do is I want to sit down with them and I want to help them build what I call a high performance mindset that encapsulates all those skills. But let me be clear, there's a difference between mental skills and mental techniques, I can talk to coaches about mental skills because coaches are invested in that stuff, man, right? Players, we just want to talk about mental techniques. It's the how. How do I get into my high-performance mindset? How do I get into my high-performance mindset? So where I'll usually start, and every player is going to be a little bit different because every player brings a different um, challenge to the table with them. But if we want to build that, that, that – if we want to build that framework – We want to help players get into a high-performance mindset. What does that look like? Let's start with what I call a game face. I want every player to have a game face. I think a game face is vital. So what is a game face? A game face is the personality a player wants to be on the pitch. It's who they want to be. It's the attitude they want to portray at all times. It's their optimal, optimal mindset, and it optimizes their physical state. Okay? So it's attitude, it's personality, it's optimizing mindset, it's the optimal physical state. The best way for me to progress now in terms of explaining what a game face is, I will give you an example. So one of my clients in the world of soccer, one of the biggest games annually anywhere in the world in soccer is the Champions League final. So it's like the European, biggest European uh, domestic competition. So between clubs, not countries, but clubs. Um, One of my clients played in the final of the Champions League last year. So think of the biggest basketball game that there is, right? It's the biggest game. So one of my clients played in the Champions League final last year, 1st of June, 2019. His number one objective was this. 
My job on the pitch is to be relentless and dominant, relentless and dominant. I'm going to be relentless and dominant nonstop. Nothing and no one takes me away from relentless and dominant. Every run, every movement, every, every action, relentless and dominant. If I give the ball away, relentless and dominant. If we go a goal down, relentless and dominant. If my cross goes into row Z, relentless and dominant. If I miss a great chance to score, relentless and dominant. I'm going to be relentless and dominant nonstop. Now, so that was his game face, relentless and dominant. I'll give you another example. I'm working with a, a player who plays for England, international soccer. When he goes out onto the pitch, he strives to be confident, relentless lion. Confident, relentless lion. Okay? That's his game face. I'm working with a woman who plays in the US women's national team. Her game face is dominant focus buskets. Dominant focus Busquets. The Busquets is from Sergio Busquets, the Barcelona holding midfielder. Again, soccer. Dominant focus Busquets. So let me break this down. Let's take our player who played in the Champions League final, relentless and dominant. When I sit down with players, I want them to start to think about them at their best. One of the most powerful questions you can ask a player as a coach, even as a psychologist, is this. Tell me about you at your best. What does your best game look like? What you're doing there, and any coach can do this, you're tapping into memory, a player's memory banks. Okay, that's my number one tool in my toolbox in many respects, memory. Tell me about you at your best. And when you ask players about them at their best, right, you're getting them to think about their best game. So they start to picture their best game. They start to experience in their mind and through their body their best game. And what I'm trying to do there is I'm trying to elicit get from them action-based words of them, relevant to them at their best. I'm also asking them about their dream game. Tell me about your dream game. That's not memory. That's imagination. Memory and imagination. Tell me about you at your best. Tell me about your dream game. Again, I'm trying to get action-based words from them. Action-based words like alert, alive, lively, relentless, dominant, cool, calm, collected, relaxed, focused, upbeat, belief, athletic, action-based words that they can be and do and act and enact and embody. So you can see where relentless and dominant came from. I sat down with this player. Tell me about you at your best. Tell me about your dream game. We had a little conversation for 10 minutes and we came up with, with relentless and dominant, relentless and dominant. So it's so applicable to basketball and other sports as well. It's applicable to any sport. And so the player comes up with a couple of key words you can then have some fun with this. You can then create what, what is essentially a pictorial metaphor. So tell me about you at your best. Tell me your dream game. A couple of keywords, relentless and dominant. Okay. You can then get them to relate that to a model player, like the, the member of the women's national team did. Busquets, Sergio Aguero, Michael Jordan, um, uh, Steph Curry, whoever it might be relating their action-based words to uh, a model player. Or we can have some more fun with that, an animal, a lion, a leopard, a cheetah, a gorilla, whatever it might be, something that resonates with them. And that doesn't always resonate with players, but often it does. So take those two action-based words, attach it to a model player, or attach it to an animal, and you've got your game face. You've got your game face. It's a really powerful pictorial metaphor built for memory, imagination, and perception, and something that they can use out in the course or the court or the court. They can take out there and they can go, right, bang, 
What am I trying to be? Relentless and dominant. Dominant, relentless, lion. Upbeat, sharp. Whatever it is, they can use that to drive themselves on, to focus their attention, to be in their best mindset, to compete with confidence, even if they're not feeling that confident. Does that make sense? I know I've gone off on one there, but yeah. No, I, I, I love it. I love it because, I mean, there's so many things to do with it. And what you're doing, it, you're, and this is something that you're known for, you're simplifying a process that could really be so confusing for an athlete or a coach. Because, um, you know, you know, coaches want things very simple. Like, what do, how do I get from A to B? And you're simplifying it. So the question I have on game face so do you ever have an, a, a scenario where the game face isn't quite as intense? Maybe it's someone who's just a little more relaxed. Maybe they laugh. They like laughing. Like, how does that look like? Because I know some coaches are like, no, 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 you don't look focused. You don't look this. You're not warming up hard enough. Those things. How does that come into play? It's a great, great question. So the game face is very, very specific to the player that you're, 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 you're having the conversation with. And whilst I think coaches can suggest action-based words, they have to be as authentic as possible to that player. And I, I, so I'll give you another working example. I'm working with a Premier League player right now, so English Premier League, soccer again, who has a game face of cool, calm Van Dyke, Cool and calm right and Virgil van Dyke who was the best player in the year voted the best player in the year last year so cool calm van Dyke and he's very much known for embodying this very cool calm persona cool calm van Dyke so it has to be individual specific and it has to be driven by the player and absolutely different personalities are going to different styles of playing different temperaments are going to suit different types of game faces that's really important to say I think what I would say is that a, a game face is mental skills that is embodied and embedded in the competitive environment. So it's as that player puts on, uh, maybe it's when that player puts on their sneakers, right? Or, or their cleats or their boots or whatever language we're using here. It's when that player walks out onto the court or onto the pitch, they embody that game face. Uh, I think it's what you've said you know, through your question is really interesting because I do think it's possible for a player to have a game face of, say, I don't know, upbeat, aggressive Jordan, as in Michael Jordan, mm -hmm. right? Upbeat, aggressive Jordan, but still have, be a jokester and a clown and a laugh in the, in the locker room beforehand because how somebody might warm up, somebody's routine, if you like, might start to encompass the game face, but how one gets to the game face might be different for different players. You know, and I actually know having watched some footage, and again, I'm not a, a massive expert on basketball, but I know Michael Jordan is on record to say, hey, you know what, I was a bit of a jokester and a bit of a clown beforehand, but when I put foot on the, on the court, I was bang into it. And so what this is doing now, so every player, it's a really important thing to say, every player is different. And I think coaches need to be, if I may say, a little bit more open-minded to understanding the individual difference, you, differences. You're going to have players who stand in the corner of the room or sit in the corner of the room and like to get into their own best mindset in their own way. They might be very quiet. They not, might not be the energizer in the locker room. They might be just trying to get into their best possible mindset in their own way, in a quiet way. Others might go from player to player and just have a little conversation, 
you know, they might instruct, they might have something to say. Others might be the, the tub thumpers, the chest thumpers, the come on, we're going to do this. Everybody is different. That's fine. But what I am saying is I want to know exactly what their game face is. When they get out on court, what in their own private world, what in their mm-hmm. own private world are they going to be embodying and doing and acting, experiencing, saying to themselves to keep themselves in their best mindset, to keep themselves in the moment competing to the best of their ability. Hmm. I, I, I find that so interesting and so helpful because I when I'm talking to a bunch of different coaches and, and even in my experiences, you know, you'll come to the locker room and coaches will say, ah, they're, they don't look focused enough or they're not working hard enough. The, with, with the game faced. How does that translate to practice, right? How, how should they be in practice, um, you know, when they have one game pace and what does practice look like? I think this is a fascinating territory and I, I, I think, you know, I'm going to do my best to answer this. I think that practice can be seen as twofold and I think this is potentially, and, and I'm talking off the top of my head here as I think about it, I, I think this can almost be seen as a continuum in many respects. I, I, I think that, I think we're very quick to talk about practice like your play. But you have to ask yourself, what is the purpose of practice? What's the purpose of practice for you as a coach? And what's the purpose of practice for each individual out here? And, 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 and you have to remember that if a player is striving to use practice as a form of what we might call deliberate practice. So I'll borrow from the research literature from, say, an Anders Ericsson at Florida State University, who is arguably the world's leading expert on expertise with his his idea of deliberate practice that is effortful, that is hard, that is uh, intentional, uh, where you are practicing on purpose with specific goals in mind that are very stretched and difficult, that maybe they're trying to retain some feedback from coaches as well. You, I think you have to uh, accept the fact that this player may play a little bit slower because that player is reflecting on their skills as they are practicing. Um, so I do think, and, and, and I suppose this makes coaching quite complicated, quite challenging, but um, it's not just a simple case of, oh, be in your game face. Oh, we're going to be practicing at 100 miles an hour here or 100%. You know, it's, it's maybe you might still communicate that, but you have to respect the fact that does an individual player or does a select, do a selection of players have specific things that they're skills that they're trying to improve? You know, are they trying to uh, improve their ability to scan and find space and get into the right position to receive the ball with the right body shape, you know, to distribute more effectively, to go for a, a three pointer when ordinarily they wouldn't have done things that maybe you've co-created. They've co-created with you, the coach, you know, in that respect, you've got to give them some, leeway because their brain is pounding away they're reflecting what they're doing in the moment um if however you know maybe from your communication as a coach you'll say no come on we're into match mode here we're now getting ready for this game i want game faces i want game pace you know if, if the top-down communication is is there that's fine. Then you want them to move away from deliberate practice or any form of intentional training onto match day preparation or game preparation. So I do think as a coach, it's trying to separate when are we in skills development mode 
when are we in game uh, game uh, practice or game preparation mode? If we're in game preparation mode, bang, game faces. Come on, right, hundred percent. Okay. Uh, if we're in skills mode, a little bit of leeway there, maybe. Now, can I give you one shade of grey here? Skill acquisition, the literature might now throw in a bit of a curveball and say, can we stretch players to be in skills, skill acquisition mode and compete with their game face? So we've got everything in there. We're in game mode and we're in skill act mode. So you're really stretching them there. You're making them feel very, very uncomfortable. Um, that's what the, that it's a very very interesting sweet spot it's what skill acquisition the literature is starting to say is that yes we can have that this dichotomy between game day preparation match preparation and skill acquisition can we now bring them together and have both that might look messy but maybe that is the neat segue into playing a game i think it's an interesting landscape no, I, you bring up so many different points because, you know, I've always, um, I can't say I've always, I've looked at what other countries do in terms of preparing, practicing, and game. And in Europe and in my time spent in Asia, I also coach the New Zealand junior national team. Like it's, you're breaking it down from practice to game mode to skills to skill acquisition. Whereas, you know, in the United States, a lot of coaches are like, we're going 100% every single day because that's how we how we want want to play so you're looking at more like and and it's really becoming taking you know, the coaching profession and breaking it up in different different levels and different intensities of every day so hopefully you could ramp up at the right time am i in mind the right pace right right spot yeah yeah absolutely and 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 look and and we, I, I'm, I'm a sports psychologist who's a student of skill acquisition and coaching science. And, and I, as you've mentioned earlier, I have a passion for striving to translate this stuff and to strive to, without abusing the evidence and without abusing the research literature, which you can do, um, try to produce something that's as simplistic as possible. And, you know, doing podcasts like this are always challenging because, you know, just it's easy to write an article because you've got all the time and the world to structure something when you're doing something like this you're 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 thinking at 100 miles an hour and you're trying to trying to come up with tangible things um i i i think that ultimately coaches are always having to make a decision about what activity what is the active what is the act what is the purpose I should start with? What is the purpose? What am I trying to do here in this session? What activities are, are, are going to help me deliver on this purpose or these purposes or objectives? And what do these activities look like? How am I trying to change behavior? Perhaps it's that sentence that gets to the heart of this. How am I trying to change behavior? Because there's lots of ways to change behavior. And again, if I come back to what I was talking about, before it might be deliberate practice so the player has a set of objectives a set of skills they're trying to to change within the activity okay so that's the onus of the player that's the classic ericsson model of deliberate practice it equally might be the tasks that the coaches set there's a whole raft of people uh, within the coaching community who believe that behavior is best changed by manipulating the task 
that they set through constraints. They constrain the movement of the players, whether that's through, you know, it could be through cones that are put down, through rules, through specific challenges that you create for players, um, that type of thing. So you, you change the task to be able to change behavior. It might be through your coaching voice. It might be by instructing, you know, but nope. You didn't get the body body shape there when you received the ball. I want it this way. I thought you were closed there. You've got to be open to it. So it might be by instructing players. There's mm-hmm. there's tasks, instructions. Um, there's um, um, the the deliberate practice that I that that I talked about earlier. You might be somebody who doesn't direct by instruction. You might be just asking questions of players. You know, what did you experience there? What what did you see that made you make that decision there? What did you notice? What were you scanning for? You know, so you're just asking what we would call a divergent question there. So there's a, there's a whole raft of things that coaching science and skill acquisition is starting to educate us on, starting to educate coaches in terms of behavior change. But ultimately, if I was to put this plainly and as simply as I can and scaffold it down, it would be, what's my objective or set of objectives here? You know, what is the purpose here? Um, what activities am I going to set to meet these objectives? How am I trying to change behavior um, and manage behavior within these activities? Um, The one thing I'd say on top of that before coming back to, to, to you here is that and hey, I might be, I'm going to throw a bit of a grenade into a room here. Maybe one of my objectives I've set myself is to chip away gently every day for the rest of my life at this. And, it, and it's British as well. It's British as well. But the North American culture, if I may say, of the insistence of um, I can't coach attitude, energy, and effort. It's up to the player to bring attitude, effort, and energy to the table. And I think that the things I've spoken about there, manipulating tasks, Helping players engage in deliberate practice, understanding your people better, um, asking the right questions on and off the court um, or the pitch. Those kind of coaching skills are the things that can help attitude, effort and energy be a co-creation between player and coaching staff. I'll get off my pedestal. Right now, Dan, if I listen. If we were doing this this podcast in person, I'd get up and give you a hug because you are absolutely, absolutely correct. This is something that 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 I firmly believe in because I think how we do practice, how we how we think of what to do, not just a regular drill, but different things that could really bring up that that activity, especially with a lot of the way our athletes, their minds are and how much information is taking in and, and putting out during the course of their day from whether they're a college or high school or professional, there, there's just so much stuff going on. So how are we tapping in to them? Because ultimately, I mean, they want to know what is it for them, right? So by talking about the game face, by talking about your intensity, your intentionality really brings the focus, yes, to the team, but also to them so they could play at their best possible part of their life Woo! I'm absolutely I need that that was that was I love it so I want to take everything that you're saying and and primarily the the game face and how people different uh, prepare in different ways then how can you implement that with the differences on your team 
to a strong, solid team culture? Great question. You know, let, let me take the game face um, technique. And actually, this works fantastically on an individual level, but it can also work on a team level. Very, very simply. And when you say team, there's some interesting terms I'd like to throw in here, or at least I think they're interesting. Um, we're very, very socialized. There's lots of socialism going in. We're socialized into outcome and performance. We're also socialized into, when we think of teamship, we think of task. Oh, sorry, beg your pardon. We, we think of social cohesion. There's lots of social cohesion that goes on in global sport. We love to take kids rock climbing because we want them to spend time together or canoeing or abseiling or the day out on the beach and lots of social cohesion and i'm not dismissing that that's great and that's fantastic the evidence base suggests that social heat cohesion whilst important isn't as impactful necessary necessarily on game day than task cohesion and again what we're very socialized in is we've got principles of play and we've got game models again thinking you know, basketball, um, soccer, American football. If we've got principles of play and we've got game models, again, we're very socialized into um, we're going to try to create task cohesion with a game model. So we work on our game model on court. We work on our game model in the classroom. We talk about that. And we create pretty good task cohesion there. You know, by and large, players can see what others, they know what others are trying to do on court. They have a, a reasonable understanding of the responsibilities uh, uh, others have within their role, right? We don't necessarily create task cohesion around the mental side of the game. I mean, that's just never there. You know, we mm. want to try to create a shared mental model around the mental side of the game. And that's what a game face can do. That's what a game face can do. So imagine this and imagine your, your teams in the past. Hernando, imagine if you had, you had created, and I'm sure what you did was great. I'm not, not saying it wasn't, but imagine if, if every single player in your team or your squad had a game face, individual to them, built from their memory and imagination. So, you know, it's not just an alter ego. It's actually a tangible thing built on their memory and imagination. That's a pictorial metaphor that helps them to take charge of themselves on the court. That's an important thing to say. That helps them to take charge of themselves on the court. That helps them to own themselves, to dominate themselves. Because there's going to be tough times on court, whether that's through their own anxieties, nerves, apprehensions, worries, doubts, um, despondencies, anger, frustrations, okay? Whether it's what the opposition are doing to them, there's going to be tough times. So they've got a game face. Now, even more powerful is we take, create some task cohesion around that game face. Every single player knows what each other's game faces are or has some idea. You've had conversation in the, ga in the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, leading into, say, a Saturday game. You've had conversations in small groups, in a bigger group, around game faces. My mate's game face is tall and upbeat. I know I've got to t I'll remind him tall and upbeat. And maybe we've, have, we've, we've had some vulnerability in the room, which is very, very important. Mm. Maybe what we've shared, you know, is, yeah, you know what? I tend to get a bit anxious before games or I'm somebody who gets down on myself or I'm somebody who gets angry and gets frustrated with myself. 
you know, out there when it's not going right or when I'm not getting on the ball or when I've missed the, that that easy that easy two pointer or I've missed a, a free throw, whatever it is, right? I'm somebody who gets down on myself or the other way around. I get angry with myself or I get angry with my teammates. Let's share vulnerability. Let's not insist on attitude, effort, and energy. Let's share vulnerability now. Where do we take that? It's very nice to share vulnerability, but we need some solutions. So let's share game faces. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to use my self-talk out there. Remind me to use my self-talk to remind myself about my game face. Now, I'm not somebody who likes self-talk. I like to embody my game face. When you see me with good body language, you know I'm bang on it. I'll give you the thumbs up. I'll give you a high five. When I look a little bit flat-footed, when I look a little bit, bit lethargic, be on me. Be on my back here. Be on my back. Those are such great conversations to have. They're expressing vulnerability. They're finding solutions. They're sharing solutions. We're creating a shared mental model. We're creating task cohesion around the mental side of the game. And let's bring that into our game model as well. You know, if things are falling apart, this is what we're doing here to be able to bring our game model back into it. Okay? So that, to me, is how game, something like a game face, and there's loads of little tools and techniques I've got, but that's something like a game face you can use to create task cohesion, to create teamship. I, I, I love just hitting on that because I, I think just that, that one thing that you're talking about can really change and help move programs forward. Because, you know, I, and, and I, I know you're, you're familiar with North American sports, but you're absolutely right. I mean, when you look at in professional sports and college sports, you know, college sports, you see the coach more as a, a, a tyrant. You know, they, this is my show. We're going to do it this way, this way, this way. Um, when you are looking at, at you know, coaching and, and sports psychology, what, what are some things that you want to tell coaches on top of being aware of everybody in terms of how they coach and how they communicate with the team? I think it's a good question, and, and it, please excuse me for pausing, because I understand and respect there are coaches who have forgotten more about their sport than, are, than I will personally ever know about their sport. And I also understand and respect that coaches have success in many different ways, many different ways. And I do believe that clearly um, a coach can be, can be successful and, and there have been lots of successful coaches, as I say, in more of a top-down autocratic form of coaching. Okay. Um, and I think if somebody's personality lends towards that, I mean, the structure of personality, one thing I would say to, to head coaches is there's real benefit in doing a five-factor personality test. It's called the NEO, and it's the gold standard personality test. It's 40 years old. If there is a structure to personality, it, it's that. There's lots of personality tests, but that is this is gold standard. This is gold standard, the NEO. Do a personality test, and if it comes out that you're quite a low agreeable person um, in, in the personality dimension of agreeableness, you're quite assertive, which is within the personality dimension of extroversion, and it all adds up to somebody who is quite autocratic, is quite forceful, that's okay, okay, fine. You might want to learn to manage that some of the time, 
But my major message there is have assistants, have assistant coaches who complement and augment that. That is crucial. Experiencing working, say, with head coaches and assistant coaches, especially here in England in the English Premier League, which is the biggest, arguably the biggest and best soccer league in the world. I'll get in trouble from German, Spanish and Italian friends there, but we'll, we'll go with it for the time being. I just think that the assistant coaches, the, the people that the head coach picks are so important because you want somebody who compliments you. You don't want somebody, you want somebody who has different, different sets of skills and maybe a different temperament, you know, because I'm not saying, you know, we can't put square pegs in round holes. What I'm not saying is that archetypal, assertive, low agreeable um, person, a head coach is going to be suddenly be that empathic, um, tender-minded, tough mind. The tender-mindedness is a personality, is a facet of a personality dimension. So that is going to be tender-minded. It's suddenly going to be low assertive. Is it, they're just not going to be like that. They're just not going to be like that. And that, that's okay. I would say learn to manage yourself. Learn to build skills to manage yourself. I'd say, so number one, learn to manage yourself a bit better. I would say pick assistance based on who you are to have people who complement that, who have a different set of skills and potentially a different personality. I would say if there is a scale from being coach-led to player-centered to player-led, alongside managing your personality, manage that continuum. Don't just explore coach-led, also explore player-centered and player-led. So in that player-centered piece, there's more questioning rather than telling. There's listening and empathy rather than talking and insisting. In that player-led piece, which you, the autocratic coach, will find enormously challenging because you feel you've got all the right answers and you know how you want your organization to run. That's okay. That's fine. But you do need to strive to feel desperately uncomfortable at times, let your assistant take over with those players and let them come up with solutions some of the time. You might not immediately accede to your players but you might allow your assistants to come up with certain solutions because you know that assistant is going to give that those players more of a voice you're not going to interject so those are the three things for me personality skills great assistants a mix of assistants and that dimension of um coach-led player-centered, player-led, learn to slide up and down that scale as best you can um, if you can do those. I love it. You're talking about sliding from coach-led to, to player. You're going back and forth. So you're, you're, you're always moving back and forth to get what you, you know, demand from your players or also get them, your players, to enlarge their vision and, and everything else. With it. Um, how... Uh, how much time should should coaches and programs spend on the mental side during the course of the week? So let's say, you know, college programs are, I mean, at professional sports, you have a little bit more time. College sports, you have different hours that you can. What is maybe something that you've seen could work with how much time should be spent on it? 
I'm either going to please you or disappoint you with my answer here. Uh, you should be spending 100% of the time on it. And I'm going to explain myself because psychosocial is omnipresent. That's a posh term for it's always there. There is never a time when psychosocial isn't there. I don't deny for one, let's break down coaching. And I'm going to give you my worldview granted, but I think it's quite a robust worldview, if I dare say so myself. Coaching is about three Ps, participation, progression, performance. Ultimately, and I'll explain those in a second, ultimately, when a coach thinks about his or her why, we love to talk about whys these days, why do we do what we do, okay? It often or just about always revolves around the three Ps, participation, progression, performance. Participation is the engagement piece. Your job as a coach is to engage players, and there isn't a coach on the planet, whether they're underweight coach, whether they're adult elite player coaches. Engagement is invited to engaging in the moment, in the activity, in the session, this day, this week, this month, this season, lifelong participation. That's engagement. Progression is about learning. We always talk about putting on coaching sessions. We never talk about putting on learning sessions, okay? Coaching is about learning, helping players progress, okay? Changing behavior, as we mentioned earlier. Performance, helping players build the capacity to compete. I'm going to use the word compete there. Helping players build the capacity to compete. So learning, a big upon engagement, learning, competing. So the three Ps. So we've got those three Ps. Coaching underneath that is the tech, tack, and physical piece. Tech, tack, and physical, technical, tactical, physical. Denying those is like denying the presence of the sun and the moon and the sky. They are sport. Technique is sport. Tactics is sport. Okay? Physical is sport. Okay? And that's every single sport. There isn't a sport that doesn't have a tech, tack, piece, uh, physical piece with it. That, that's sport. Now, the psychosocial piece, and I put those together, the psychosocial. The psychosocial drives the technical, tactical, and physical components through the prism of engagement, learning, and competing. Psychosocial drives those areas. Psychosocial is always there, every single second on court. You know, it is, it, the psychosocial is self-skills. You know, it's, it's self-awareness, self-management, self-reflection. Uh, the, the, the psychosocial piece is the environment you create. It's your coaching practices and it's your communication, your listening, your body language in the moment on court. Um, it's your empathy. It's, actually, it's your instruction. It's your questioning. It's all the skills we've talked about so far. Psychosocial piece is motivation and emotion. It's personality characteristics. It's mental skills, game face, etc. Psychosocial is leadership, teamship, relationship. Those are the different skills, if you like, that encompass the psychosocial piece. That is always there. Make every single second of your activities about psychosocial. Coaches are doing that anyway. When they're driving players on with their voice, psychosocial. When they're asking questions, psychosocial. You know, when they're having players engage in fun, laughter, smiles and sweat, psychosocial. When they're getting players huddled together, coming up with their own solutions, that's teamship, that's leadership, okay? That's relationship. 
when they're demanding from a player that they drive others on. That's leadership. You know, when they're doing the game face piece, when the players are working on it together, that's teamship. You know, when you're going out for a, a beer, if you're old enough, or if you're, if you're going out for doing canoeing or anything that I've said, right, that's relationship. Psych social is always happening. You've got to remember that. It's always happening. On the court, it's, it's attention, intensity, intent. It's always happening. So my disappointing or great answer for you is it's always happening. Just make sure, I suppose the meat on the bone here is as a coach, my message to a coach is make sure you understand it's always happening. It's always happening. Make sure you're a great coach. You're a great psychosocial coach that every single second it's happening and take time to be prepared for that, execute it in the moment, and then reflect on it after. Plan, do, review. Plan to be a psychosocial coach. Do a psychosocial coach. Be a psychosocial coach. And then review being a psychosocial coach. Did I get the psychosocial piece right today? Don't make it external. Don't externalize it. It's not just up to your players and your players are burdened. Of course, they've got to come on. Of course, you have to, um, uh, 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 you have to invite them to have attitude, effort, and energy. Of course, you've got to co- co-create the right solutions. You've got to help them create the right values for your all organization, the behaviors aligned with those values. You know, you've got to hold them accountable for those, but you're a part of being held accountable for those. It's a co-created solution here. You're all in with attitude, effort, and energy. You're all in with psychosocial, you, your assistants, your players. And when it's that team effort, that's when it becomes very, very powerful. Mm. You're, you're, you're talking about coaches having to be, I know people talk about really being in the moment, but really noticing those moments so that you could analyze or for lack of a better word, so that you can go ahead and be a psychosocial coach in everything that, that you're doing. And that, that's being intentional. And that's, that's, you know, I think that when, when you look at coaches, coaches are, you know, well, people in general, right? We spend so much time thinking of what's going to happen or what has happened and sometimes we lose that part in the middle, which is what's happening right now where I could get my athletes, players to moving to, to another level, basically. It, 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 it's really well, really well said. And it's coaching with intent, but it's coaching psychosocial with intent. And, and in many respects, what you're talking about is the psychological phenomenon of, yeah, it's called inattentional blindness. And I'm sure yourself and maybe a lot of your guests have, have watched the gorilla um, uh, I'm going to say something here and if you haven't watched it, go and watch it. And because and it, 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 what I'm about to say will be strange if you haven't seen it, but actually it's a basketball feature and um, you're asked to count the number of uh, passes that uh, basketball players are, are, are making and Google, Everybody, Google inattentional blindness, Simons and Shabri, go on YouTube and watch it. And it's really fascinating. But what what they've shown these researchers is that we have inattentional blindness. We don't necessarily see things based on our values, based on our beliefs, based on our personality. The biases we bring to the table, personality, beliefs, values, mean that we will see certain things and respond accordingly, and we will miss certain things and not respond appropriately. Let me give you a prime example here. So many coaches, when a player is playing poorly at half time, 
uh, 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 excuse me, a player is playing poorly, first quarter, second quarter, or half time, or whatever it is. So you get to half time, and whether you start shouting and screaming at that player, or whether you're somebody who just has a conversation with them, often where you go is, well, that player's um, lost confidence, not confident, or more importantly, that player's not motivated. You know, where's the, again, where's the attitude, the effort and the energy? You know, that, that motivation piece, motivation inverted commas. Now, because maybe you've looked at this in a very simplistic way, because your value maybe might be, you know, come on, attitude, effort and energy, and we're an organization about this, and you should be doing this. This is about you, the player. Maybe your belief your belief is, I can't give this to you. You've got to turn up. You're going to be talking towards that attitude, effort, and energy. I've told you loads of time, attitude, effort, and energy. This isn't good enough. I've got to see it out there. Now, here's the problem. In that instance, so many times, your inattentional blindness is towards anxiety. That player doesn't lack motivation. That player doesn't lack a great attitude, doesn't lack effort or energy. That player is anxious. That player is anxious. That player is anxious because of the occasion. That player is anxious because um, something happened to them yesterday at school and they're struggling to overcome that. That player is anxious because they had a bad training session yesterday and they missed lots of chances and, and, and they've just, you know, we go to the confidence piece there, they've dropped in confidence, you know. So, that's where you've got to be very, very careful with your personality, your beliefs, and your values when they're, when they're very – if you don't necessarily know what they are, personality, beliefs, values, if you're very set in stone with them, if you're not going to listen to your assistants and you're going to be very set in stone in what you think and you don't listen to your assistant, if the assistant comes along and says, I think that player's anxious. No, 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 no. They're just displaying a poor attitude. That's where it can go wrong. That's inattentional blindness. And so to be able to overcome that, that's where being able to have the capacity to be flexible and broaden your personality capacity across your dimensions to understand your beliefs but have the capacity to be flexible on those beliefs to understand your values but to be flexible with your values holding those values dear but understand not everybody has those values that's very very that's a very robust coaching approach to take so um that, that's what I'd say to that. I fractionally lost my train of thought there and can't quite remember how we got onto that topic But because um, I was so into that. But, that, but I think that, that in, inattentional blindness piece is a very interesting one, a very interesting one. I, I, I mean, I've, I've actually never heard of that term, but you're, you're so right, right? We're, we are biased and it happens in the way we coach, the way we are in relationships or with, with partnerships or with, with work, with, with everything else. And I think the key thing is, right, you're talking about flexibility when in many ways we're taught not to be so flexible, right? This is where the direction we're going and we're going in this direction no matter what. And, and, and for some reason, we, we, go, we fall off that cliff and then we realize we could have been flexible and been able to get off the boat or do something else with it. It is, uh, well, those, I mean, we, could, yeah, we could go on for like seven hours about this stuff, uh, but I'm very conscious on your time, man. I, I I got one more question for you. This is everyone loves this question. Well, I, maybe not everyone. I love this question. So when they make 
the Dan Abraham's movie, full feature film, who's playing you? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, real tough questions here on this podcast, Dan. I'm telling you, real tough ones. Um, I'm, I'm going to go with, um, I'm going to go, I'm going to be optimistic here. Um, I'd like to go with someone like Daniel Craig, James Bond, but that's just ridiculously optimistic. That's um, mindlessly. Oh. That's mindlessly optimistic. So uh, let's let's go with. Uh, I, I'm probably going to kick myself here and change my mind. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's an English actor called um, Benedict Cumberbatch. Great name. Yes. Um, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think of films he's been. He's been in loads of films. Um, yeah. He's an English actor, and. He's a doctor, uh, Doctor Strange in the Marvel Universe. Okay, he probably is. I haven't watched that film, but he probably is. Um, but it, he, I'm going to go with him. And as I say, I will definitely kick myself on this one. Again, I'd like to go for a bond like Sean Connery, or, 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 or um, um, I'm probably Sean Connery's 90 years old now, so he probably could play me pretty well. But uh, <laughs> um, no, I'm going to go with Benedict, Benedict Cumberbatch because. Um, I, I like to think I, I'm quite cerebral about things, and I think he's quite a cerebral actor. So uh, and he's more inclined to play the cerebral part whilst not looking ferociously ugly at the same time. So uh, I'm going to try and hit two birds with one stone as best I can. Well, he was great. Have you seen him in Imitation Game? Yes, that's, that's that. He's great in that. He's so great in that. Is, that. That was great. Actually, it's one of those movies I actually watch a lot of movies on since I well I used to travel a lot now I don't that's the only time I'd watch it I said all right fine I'll watch this and it was that was really really great and he was tremendous at that and it fit in perfectly based on what we all think he is absolutely I'm I'm gonna file one thing back to you and just say there's a big problem with the question you you you've asked me there and that's that I'm not convinced that anybody would want to watch that film yeah. <laughs> because it's not overly exciting. I mean, I like my life and I've had a nice life um, and I've had some ups and downs like we all have personally, but nothing truly melodramatic that's going to make a great film. It's going to be quite staid and quite lots of bad golf shots. That's what it's going to look like. Lots of bad golf shots. So, uh, and lots of sitting at a desk typing stuff about sports psychology. And I don't think that that's particularly gripping, to be honest. <laughs> well, I'm going to do it. Dan, where can people find you, reach out to you, everything? So, okay, thank you very much. Um, so I'm on, my website is danabrahams.com. Um, I uh, can be found on uh, Twitter. Um, I actually have three Twitter pages, but I'll give you my main um, one, which is at danabrahams77, at danabrahams77, giving my age away there. Um, I'm on Facebook at Dan Abrahams Soccer. Instagram is at Dan Abrahams Sport. I'm, I'm tweeting all the time. I'm little tidbits, little ideas, uh, experimenting with ideas. On my Facebook, I'm, I'm by and large, I'm doing um, a, an article, a mini post or article every day. Um, and that's on my LinkedIn as well. 
well if you want to link in. Um, and then uh, Instagram, a sort of a little quote every day. Um, if I may, uh, if I can mention, I, I do have a podcast as well, uh, which I'm sure is half as good as this one, but it's, um, it's, at, it's the Sports Psych Show, the Sports Psych Show, where we're delving in deep into uh, sports psychology subjects. Um, and if I may, I also just wanted to say I have a, um, four books that are available on Amazon, Soccer Tough, Soccer Tough 2, Soccer Brain and Golf Tough. And I have an online soccer academy that even though it's a soccer academy, it's still very suitable for basketball coaches and things like game face and um, squashing ants and high performance mindset and controllers and match script and all the funky little techniques I've created are introduced on there. And at the moment, that's uh, because of everything that's going on in the world right now, I've reduced it by 75%. So it's at £49. That's $55 for an annual membership suitable for players, coaches, and parents. And I know a lot of basketball coaches are into um, the, 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 the soccer device is very applicable so and i just want to say thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to come on your podcast no Dan, this was awesome loads of information i'll make sure i'll have all those links and everything else to the academy to the podcast to your four books and everything else guys you can grab the links and and pick up all his amazing materials that he has and follow him on all social media uh, that's how i found dan i really was was really dope deep into your content and saw and and listen to a bunch of your podcasts and everything else. Dan, thanks so much for joining us, man. I appreciate it so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Stay safe and well. Dan brought it today, and I'm pretty sure he brings it every single day. I tell you what, how about some things such as attention, intensity, intense, some of those key words that could help you with your team, your employees, even your partner. What I really love, one of the things he said, is that tell me what your best looks like. I guarantee you ask these questions to your people, their mind will be blown and you will get the answers that you seek. Thanks so much for joining us, Dan. Listen, I say this all the time. You got to go show us some love. Please, I'm begging you, head over to iTunes, rank us, rate us, give us one star, five stars, whatever it is. I appreciate it greatly. If you ever need to get a hold of me, DM me on the gram, on Twitter, on Facebook, anything and everything, and visit HernandoPlanels.com because we are on a mission to help you and to be contagious for everybody around us. I love you guys. I'll see you next time on the B-C-L-E. 